All right, a couple things uh, on your packet. You've got um, obviously the two pages that we're going to be looking at tonight, plus your verses. And then in the very back is a bibliography I want to draw your attention to just really quickly. This is a bibliography specifically for this packet, not for the entire series that I've been doing so far. Specifically for this packet, sources consulted. Um, and, ta- and the packet is drawn from these sources. And mostly, I want to draw your attention to the first one on the list there. If anything that we talk about tonight produces a question in your mind as to um, more about just Baptist in general and anything about Baptist, that first book on the list there by Anthony Shute, Nathan Finn, and Michael Haken, uh, called The Baptist Story, From English Sect to Global Movement, is fantastic. It's uh, written really well. It's a. It's not a. It's a easy. It's an easy to read. Assuming you gotta like history, all right. Let's just say it that way. You got, you gotta have a little bit of inclination for history and things like that. But assuming you do that, uh, it, it explains a, a ton. It's really helpful. Uh, written at a very low level, it's very easy to access, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic book. So I would recommend that. Um, that is the predominant source um, for a, a lot of. Uh, Baptist history material. The other ones on the list um, are okay, but they tend to be very narrow in their understanding, like at least in terms of they, they sort of, like as an example, Herschel Hobbes and E.Y. Mullins tend to present Baptist history very much in, a, in their era, in the 60s or in the 20s with E.Y. Mullins. So um, they tend to present a, a Baptist view of, of Baptist history that's very much sounds a lot like the 1920s. Um, which is not necessarily great in terms of history. You kind of want a broad scope, which I think the, f- the first book on the list does a much better job at that. And then um, Norm, uh, uh, Stan, uh, Stanton Norman um, is um, a little bit more on the liberal end of the spectrum, uh, so just caution on that one. Um, all righty. So with that in mind, let's get into our, our, what we're going to be talking t- about tonight. I, wanna, I just want to ask a question how many in here have grown up Baptist? Not necessarily Southern Baptist, just Baptist in general. A lot of people, okay. All right. Now, how many grew up specifically Southern Baptist? All right, okay, good deal. Um, that's helpful. It depends on what church you're in and it depends on what group you, you find in front of you. What we find is pretty common amongst um, people in my generation is that They've kind of gravitated towards the Baptist church at one point or another, perhaps even married uh, someone who was Baptist, and they kind of took on the Baptist church or found themselves in a Baptist church for one reason or another that wasn't, they were born and raised there. Um, I was the, I don't even remember not being in a Baptist church, uh, was born and raised there and had my diaper changed by the ladies in the nursery and things like that, uh, and that was when I was like 15, so I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm just teasing. Um, no, uh, so <laughs> you never know why someone might find themselves in a, um, in a, in a Baptist church, but there tends to be the question on a lot of people's minds that things that are done in a Baptist church that aren't necessarily clear as to why. Why, why do we do things the way that we do? And there, there raises the question, why are we Baptists? If you left here, let's say, and you were to move away to some other place, 
what kind of church would you join? Would you look first for, I just want a good Bible preaching church, or would you look first for a, a Baptist church, or maybe a Southern Baptist church? So th- this week and next week, we're going to look at, as, as far as how we define the church, uh, what does it mean to actually be Baptist, first of all, and then next week, what does Southern Baptist actually mean? So what's the distinction there with Southern Baptist? Now, especially when we get into next week, a lot of people have some big misconceptions about the Southern Baptist Church in general, um, about what it is that we do, what is our relationship to the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, what, what does it actually mean to be Southern Baptist. So we're going to talk a lot about that next week. This is just Baptist in general, and, um, and so I want to go through all of these essentials for being Baptist. In the church, this first little blank here, in the church, God has unified all members, we've said that, under the banner of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. All members of Christ's body are also united in the purpose of displaying His glory to the nations. So we know that's true, and we've talked for at length for several weeks in a row now about the fact that if we are all part of the same body, part of the reason we say we're part of the body of Christ is because we've been united. But if you notice... When you drive up and down the road on a Sunday morning as you're going to church, there's a lot of denominations on the road. This second blank here, there are numerous denominations within a given city that worship separately from one another every Sunday in spite of the fact that we know, and we've been talking about for some time, we're united. So why is it then that we've got a Baptist church here We have another Baptist church right there. In fact, both Southern Baptist churches, right? That are a stone's throw from each other. Right down here, we've got a Presbyterian church. We have another Baptist church behind us, not very far behind us. And we've got a Bible church, I guess TCAT is Bible church or something along those lines back there. But, But we would say probably of like faith and order, at least to some degree, right? Outside of the fact that they're... Baptist, but within us, within we, somebody with a strong arm could probably throw a tennis ball from the, all these churches that are around us. Why is it then that if we're united as a body, that we do have so many churches spread out across a given city? And then why are there so many de- different denominations? Would a Presbyterian just allow me to walk in there and join their church without question or anything like that? Or how about the other way around? Could a Presbyterian walk in here and just join the church without question? Um, Baptists hold, this third blank, the Baptists hold the vast majority of their beliefs in common with other Christians, such as the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, the list goes on of a number of different things that Baptists hold in common. The vast majority of our beliefs are in common with other churches. And in fact, I've sat down with Richard Weiss, I've sat down with various pastors around this town. Some are part of our denomination, some are not. And we hold a lot of the same beliefs, all the same. And I would say they're my brother in Christ, and yet we're part of two different denominations. Um, so there's core beliefs, things that we, we would say, this, you, you have to believe these things in order to even be a Christian. The things listed here, the, the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, we could say the, the, the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture, 
um, several things along these same lines we all agree to across all of these churches, and we really have to. That's what it means to be a Christian, is you agree to these basic tenets. But in addition to those core beliefs, there are historically, Baptists have embraced certain beliefs that, uh, uh, that they uniquely emphasize, and we call these Baptist distinctives. These are Baptist distinctives, things that we believe that potentially most other denominations don't. Now, you may find this is not saying that here are the things that Baptists believe that nobody else believes. Okay, that, that's not what we're saying. But by and large, these are the things that Baptists believe that many denominations do not agree to. And throughout these distinctives that we're going to go through, you'll find uh, we may agree in some part with the Presbyterians, but disagree with the Anglicans. Or we may agree with the Anglicans in some part and disagree with the, the Presbyterians. So as we go through this, it's not that no one else agrees to this. It's just that Baptists tend to have a different view on some of these things than most other things. But my hope is that as we go through some of these distinctives, that, you'll, that maybe you'll kind of go, oh, I've always heard that, but never really understood where that come fr- came from or why. First of all, Baptists, uh, number one here, Baptists believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that Christ's sovereignty cannot be delegated through human beings or institutions. All right? I want you to think about that for just a second. Baptists believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ and that Christ's sovereignty cannot be delegated through human beings or institutions. So it's as if Jesus is the monarch, he is the king, and all of us are serving him. Now, probably what's going on in your head right now, I'm just guessing is, who disagrees with that, right? Probably because you were born and raised in the Baptist church. You think to yourself, who disagrees with that? Why would anybody uh, disagree with that, that premise? Well, let's go through this second point, and then we'll come back to it. To be a Christian is to bow the knee to Christ, to Christ's rule over your life through repentance and faith. And so to be a church, then, is to strive to conform every aspect of congregational life to the will of Christ as it's revealed in the Bible. All right. So there's a bunch of things in there where denom- other denominations are going are gonna to push back. That was repentance and faith, those, those previous two blanks there. Um, in many congregations, in many churches, in many denominations, a lot of the authority is going to be relegated either simply to a council of elders... You've heard this in maybe a Presbyterian church, where elders rule, right? They form the government. Or, in some other denominations, the Bible is not the sole authority on the governance of the church. What becomes the authority in, say, an Anglican church, an Anglican church believes in the three-legged stool of the Bible, history, and tradition, right? So, what has the authority of how the church is governed in the context of the covenant community that meets there, it is different from denomination to denomination. In a Baptist church, because we see Christ as being Lord over the entire congregation and each and every member therein, the Bible, Christ's will as it's revealed in the Word, becomes the central authority on all practices of governance. So what you'll find as pretty common in Baptist churches, and you'll hear this if you're a pastor of a Baptist church, 
you will hear pretty commonly when people come from another denomination into the church and seek out membership is, y'all read the Bible a whole lot around here. Have you ever heard that before? You've never heard that before? Come on, don't leave me out here on an island. Have you heard that before? Anybody? You, you, it's, it's pretty interesting. You talk to someone from another denomination, whether it's a Methodist denomination or, or really any other denomination, they come in and they, that's one comment that they make more than anything else, is y'all read the Bible a whole lot around here. In our Sunday school classes or in our building blocks, we open the Bible and we read it and we seek to understand what it means from the sermon. We read through, the ver- read through it verse by verse because this basic thing that has been the foundational uh, the foundation of the Baptist church since its inception is that we see Christ as being Lord over every single member and over the body of Christ as a whole. And therefore, the only way we know how to govern the church is by giving ourselves to the Word and doing what it says. This is Christ's revealed will, and so this is how we have to be governed. Whereas that's not always true in every denomination. Charlie. Yeah. And so I've always heard that. Yeah. But to hear him say that yeah. was like Yeah. Okay. So if you he was his comment was about Eastern Orthodox and how he, he sat down with the Eastern Orthodox man who said you the difference between you and us is that you Baptists believe in in only the authority of the Bible, whereas we believe in the Bible plus the authority of handed down from the apostles and things like that. So if you go over to Eastern Orthodox or Catholic Church, there's so two slightly different things going on there. Have you heard of the Vicar of Christ? The Pope is the Vicar of Christ. He is uh, Vicar meaning uh, in the place of. He's sort of representing Christ to the people. And his position is supposed to be one where uh, he is a theological descendant of Peter. All right, not a, not a, he's not genetically connected to Peter. He's theologically descended from Peter. So Peter was seen in the Catholic Church, or is seen as the first bishop of Rome, and then he handed down that position to several others throughout time, and now you've got, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, yep. No, I was, I, John Paul was the first one. He hadn't been there in how many years? <laughs> then Benedict, then Francis, Saint Francis, Pope Francis. Um, so uh, Pope Francis uh, is 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 now considered to be the theological descendant of Peter. Uh, it's handed down. It's handed down. Yeah, but theologically, it's handed down. Uh, well, there's a, so I don't want to get into a bunch of Catholic theology, but there, there's a conference that happens when a new pope is selected. And now, what is, what is true of the pope, what is true of the pope, is also true of the bishops. All right? The bishops are theologically descended. And so one of the bishops is selected as the pope, right? He's to be the vicar of Christ on earth. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
I mean, there are a number of differences between Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, but the biggest difference between them is that Eastern Orthodox does not recognize the authority of the Bishop of Rome. So, so the Pope is, is, a, is really just the Bishop of Rome. That's all he is, okay? But he is considered the greatest among equals. So they're all equal. All the bishops are equal. He's the greatest among the equals. Yep. Uh, so he's the, he's, the great, he's the greatest among equals. Well, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they don't recognize the authority of, pope, of the Pope as the vicar of Christ, but all of the bishops carry that same sort of idea. So from in the, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's not just the Bible. It's the Bible tradition and the council of the bishops as the representatives of, quote-unquote, representatives, vicars of Christ, as they carry the, that kind of weight and authority. So when you read this, and when you look at this, you're like, well, who disagrees with the lordship of Jesus Christ? It's a particular way the Baptists mean lordship that has always been uh, prominent in Baptist tradition. So you and I really fall under the same umbrella, whereas in another tradition, you wouldn't see me the same way as you do in a Baptist church. In a Baptist church, we are really more or less all on the same, we are all on the same plane. We all fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ, whereas in an Eastern Orthodox tradition, there would be a, a special reservation for the, the priest that's there. Understand? Tracking with me? Okay. So, second, Baptists believe that the local church's membership should be comprised only of individuals who provide credible evidence that they have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is known as regenerate church membership. Always been a part of Baptist church. Regenerate church membership. And some of that comes from a couple of different places. Acts 2, 41-47, just as an example. Um, uh, well, that's kind of long. Let's look at Acts 4, 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. doesn't mention how many women, but the, uh, the, the, a number believed. Um, so, uh, Acts 14, 21. And when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium. Um, and, and throughout Acts, what we see is there's a response by the people. They believe, and they're numbered amongst the members. And so, Baptists have forever um, practiced regenerate church membership. Now, you might think to yourself, well, yeah, what, how else would you practice regenerate church membership? I remember uh, the previous church that I was at, there was the person who was associate pastor before me, he, he was there, we overlapped probably three months, and he went to pastor a church about three months after I got there, and um, he, the church that he went to was an um, evangelical free church, and notoriously in the evangelical free church, they don't practice regenerate church membership. You could be a member of the church without ever being baptized. You don't have to be baptized in order to be a member of of the church. That's a fairly common practice amongst many denominations. Um, and so, but the distinctive that Baptists have made is that only regenerate p 
people can be members, and the way that they police that one way is that baptism is reserved only for those who have demonstrated credible evidence that they've repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. But at the same time, oh, and then, and then if you go to a Presbyterian church, who's going to be baptized in a Presbyterian church? Infants. So you have infant baptism being practiced across many denominations, which sort of blends the whole idea of uh, membership in the church with people that are simply baptized in the covenant community. Baptists, and the second next blank underneath that, Baptists affirm the biblical command to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as it says in Ephesians 6.4. However, we do not believe that this entails granting membership in Christ's new covenant community to the unconverted children of believers. So, uh, historically, there's been two ways that Baptists have have governed the church to ensure that it stays a regenerate church membership. And the first uh, is the adoption of local church covenants. How many of you grew up in a Baptist church where there was a, lo- where there was a, a church covenant that you read together, or, or at least had? Anybody? James? A few of you? Was it printed in the hymnal? You open it up on the... F- oh, wall chart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So church covenants was one way, and we, we, a few weeks ago we read a church covenant in here that basically is just a statement on really what it means to be a Christian. I mean, when you read it, you're like, all of these are statements straight from Scripture that indicate you're a, you're a born-again believer, that you practice these things and you're held accountable to these things. So the, the purpose of a church covenant is the second way in which... Baptists have notoriously made sure or ensured that the membership is regenerate, and that is the practice of church discipline. So the covenant, basically as read, basically gives you an idea of for what reason would a church discipline me and even remove me from membership? Well, it's if I don't believe or adhere to the things listed in the covenant. You know, I agree to show up to church on Sunday and worship, right? I agree to live a life consecrated to the Lord. I agree to repent of sin. I mean, right, so it's these simple things that if you choose instead not to do those things, it helps the whole membership to understand, I don't think I'm a Christian. And the whole church to go, yeah, we agree, you're not. And remove, remove you from church membership. And so this is historically the way that Baptist churches have guarded that, uh, that membership, making sure that the, church, that the church membership is made up of regenerate Christians. But now, in the Baptist church, as we've kind of moved on through the years, there's been a tendency to push baptism back further and further in the years to where I, I, I think I've told this story in here uh, a time or two, I remember, uh, you know, I, obviously at the previous church, I was uh, an associate pastor. I, was, I did what I was told. And, um, and there was a, a girl that came with her parents to be baptized. She was, I think she was five years old. And uh, when she got into baptistry, the people in the congregation laughed because you could barely see the top of her head over the over the edge of the baptistry. Like, you just saw her get in the water, and all you saw was this, top of her head. And uh, we had a concrete block in the baptistry that you had to sit them up on, stand them up on, so that 
so that people could actually see their head. And even when you put her up on the concrete block, she was like this, you know, still. And uh, it's been a, a tendency in Baptist churches to push the age of baptism further and further back, which gets dangerously close to the exact same thing infant baptism is really trying to accomplish. Um, so it's always been a, 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 a process in the Baptist church that we have regenerate church membership, which actually brings us to the next thing. Number three on the list here is that regenerate church membership may be foundational, uh, the foundational Baptist distinctive, but believer's baptism is almost certainly the most well-known. This is simply the idea that baptism should only be applied to individuals who give credible testimony to their faith in Christ. So we obviously know lots of Lots of churches out there that are completely separate from this. They would be called pedo Baptists that would actually baptize infants um, uh, and uh, consider them in some way connected to the covenant community based on their baptism. The problem with pedo Baptism is numerous. For one, there's no command given in Scripture and really no strong evidence that there ever was any, were any ba- babies baptized ever in, in the Bible. Um, but the, in the, those that practice paedo-baptism, which is infant baptism, can't agree on the theology behind paedo-baptism. And that gives evidence to the fact that that's because it's not in the Bible, right? So when they baptize babies, the Catholics do it for a different reason than the Methodists do it, than a, than a different reason than the Anglicans do it, and a different reason than the Presbyterians do it. All do it for different reasons because the foundational principles of it are not found in Scripture anywhere. But this next blank here, by contrast, nearly all credo-baptists, which is people that baptize following a profession of faith, um, contend that believers' baptism by immersion is a symbolic depiction of the gospel, and it's an outward sign of the spiritual transformation within the life of a new believer and marks the public identification of a believer with the body of Christ. Look at Romans 6, 3-5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice it doesn't say crawl in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. I'm sort of being tongue-in-cheek there. but For if we have been united with Him in His death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Um, and then obviously here's Matthew 18, uh, 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus seems to indicate there's a, a new life coming on the backside of baptism. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There seems to be uh, following baptism, a, 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 um, and these are two of copious amounts of Scripture that demonstrate adults confessing the Lord and, and then following through in baptism. Um, questions on that? I feel like there might be some, maybe. I mean, I think we're probably a lot of us credo-baptists, but uh, Timothy, question? 
Yeah. Yeah, the comment was, um, uh, in a Muslim country, if your children are not baptized, they can be taken out of your home. And um, what I would say to that is, if, if I could just give a response, the things that we believe uh, are theologically true, uh, some, of the, some, of, some of them would look different country to country. And there's not a chance that I would live in a Muslim country and not put my kids in water by being, in being a Christian, right? Not a chance. And as far as the government would be concerned, they would be baptized, and they would be indicated as, they're mine, and you're not touching them. Um, so, or, you, or you're just going to kill me. It's going to be over my dead body that they go anywhere, right? So, so uh, that, doesn't necessar- that doesn't mean at all that theologically I'm compromising any of these things, any of these truths of Scripture, right? So what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying here uh, would obviously be amended on a mission field where there's things that I would have to do politically to ensure that my, my children are mine. That doesn't mean at any point in my theology is that changing in the teaching of my children, is that changing? Uh, my, my children would, would understand that they need to be baptized following a profession of faith, that this is for the government's concern, of course. Um, you know, I think there's, that's relatively common in a lot of foreign countries where that, where that is the case, perhaps living under Sharia law or a number of, a number of other considerations that you might have to make. Yeah. Um, any other, any questions about that? Go ahead, Tommy. Yeah, um, he said, I've always... Uh, understood or believed that children were, until they were of age, were innocent um, in the eyes of God. I think there's there's some evidence for some things like that in Scripture, um, and I and I would say uh, even in uh, Romans Romans one, he condemns a whole host of people because they knew God, but neither acknowledged Him as God or gave Him thanks, and that was what condemned them, which is certainly not true of, of children. It's difficult because there's not an age where we would say, okay, now you're accountable to God. Though, I think in, you know, in the Old Testament, certainly that's where the bar mitzvah came from. You understand? Bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Bar, bat mitzvah means daughter of the commandment. Basically, it's, um, it's the idea of you are now responsible for the commandments that are given to you in the Old Testament at that age. So, there certainly is some historic, there, there's some thought about that going far back, but I think, you know, as far as where the New Testament church is really at, um, there are demonstrations in a child's life that they are taking faith that ha- their parents believed, and it's becoming their own, and uh, I, this, is, this is a difficult deal, but this is where we're at as a church, okay? So this is just... I think this is a good segue, if you don't mind. Um, um, when your child is young, my children's age, okay? You've seen my children running around. Um, my oldest, really, especially my oldest two, would, would be able to recite the gospel. They would be able to tell you what the gospel is. Um, and they would say to you that they believe it, right? And they would, 
They would even be able to respond, correct. They would even be able to uh, maybe even push back on some of our family members and things like that. Don't, well, that, 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 that's not, you know, what's in the Bible and things like that, right? In a really smart aleck way, by the way. Um, but the, there's a, they're, they're still not at a point where they have begun to differentiate their beliefs from my beliefs. You can't tell a nickel's worth of difference between what they believe and what I believe, right? They haven't become a, a, a different identity, really. Everything that, that I've told them, they take as the honest truth. But there's a point, and this is where, as a church, we have to do honest examination of individuals that are in our body, where th- their faith becomes their own, and you start to see the fruit that the Spirit produces being born in their lives independent of their parents, independent of their, their family. And you see the quite opposite. You see a kid coming forward at 9, I believe the gospel, and then at 13, could not be further from the gospel if you, you, know, if you threw up. And, and so as a church body, what we're responsible for and what Baptists have historically been responsible for is taking the testimony of the believer that comes forward and also analyzing the fruit. Part of the reason why when someone comes forward to join as an adult and they say, I believe in Jesus, we want to hear a couple of things. First of all, we want to hear what your testimony is. What is it that you believe, and what is your testimony about Jesus? What has that actually done to your life? What difference has that made in regards to sin and things like that? And I also want to sit down with them. I want to talk with them. I want to hear about their life. I want to see evidence of the fruit that the Spirit produces in them, right? Uh, and, And by and large we don't just jump into membership and baptism or whatever with someone who comes the first time. We want to hear from them. We want to know who they are. We want to get to know them a little bit better because that is what our job is. We're, we're seeing regenerate church membership. We want, that's what we want. We want to see regenerate church members. We want to see people who are genuinely born again. And the only way you can see that is analyzing fruit that's being produced in their life not only based on their confession, but by the way that they live as well. But then that also means that on the backside, we have to be faithful in practicing thorough church discipline. In the event that we see someone who is clearly stepped out of the line, and then we confront them gently in their sin. If they refuse to repent, we take two or three others. If they refuse to listen to them, we tell it to the church. We take the church to them. If they refuse to listen even to the church, what does Jesus say? Let them be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. He outlines what church discipline looks like. Regenerate church membership is not only we guard on the front door, we also guard on the back door as well. It's part of our responsibility. We've talked, we've hashed that out a lot in here. Any other questions on that? On that end? Let me go on and then we'll get questions at the end. Um, fourth, congregational polity or congregationalism is the belief that local churches should be governed by their own membership, congregationalism. So, stands to reason now, if you believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you believe that each member is governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and responsible, and is regenerate then, and what you have in front of you is a regenerate church membership, then the congregation as a whole is responsible for responding to Christ in that way, both individually in your homes and collectively as a church. 
Um, and that's contrasted with something like a Presbyterian form of church governance, where um, not only is the church, does the church have a body of believers, but then there's a body that meets above the, the local church and governs the local church, which is a council of presbytery. Or you'll hear bishops being used. For instance, in the Catholic Church or in the Anglican Church, there's a council of bishops that would govern how the church is. That's why a Methodist minister doesn't choose where his church is. He's appointed to his church because there's a council of, I think they call them bishops, that uh, appoint pastors to their churches. Um, congregationalism, this next blank here, congregationalism is a corporate expression of the reformational principle of the priesthood of all believers. Um, Exodus 19.6, let's take a look there. And you shall be to me, this is God's promise to the kingdom of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. But then Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Um, so Peter reflects the same kind of idea to the church, and as Baptists, historically we have believed this, that there is the priesthood of all believers. Many churches actually would align with us on that. But what you'll see as different for the church, for us, is that precisely what I said earlier, where we're on, you and I are both um, priests to some degree. Both of us are priests. We don't see a priest as being an elevated uh, role inside the church. So I'm not called uh, Father Michael, Friar Michael, or any number of other terms that we would use for things like that. The preacher has, in the Baptist church, has normally either been preacher or brother, uh, which I'm comfortable with. Either terms outside of that I'm not super comfortable with. Um, because we don't believe in that kind of idea that the, the priest has some sort of inside track into the lordship of Christ that he then disseminates down to the congregation. All of us, as congregationalists, are responsible to Christ individually, but then also collectively. Um, but it is also true that the members select pastors to lead them. It's not just that, that we have, you know, we, we say, well, we're, we're all on the same level, and so, you know, whatever. There, there's a leadership component that the Bible clearly does lay out for someone that is an elder or an overseer of the church. So what probably is more an apt description of how Baptist churches are governed is a Christ-centered congregationalism where each local church is ruled by Jesus Christ, governed by its members, that we all have responsibility for how the church functions, but are responding to the leadership of the pastors and elders and are also served by the deacons, which is things that we've talked about all along. Um, all right, so fifth, there's a local church autonomy. It's the idea that every church is then, as we're, we're each individually, collectively together, we're responding to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're autonomous in that we're free to determine our own agenda for our church in our location. This is setting us up for how we understand the Southern Baptist Convention and how it functions and how it absolutely does not function. Um, but each church within the Southern Baptist Convention or each Baptist church 
is free to determine its own agenda as it answers to the Lord as He has revealed it through His Word. So no denomination, this is the next one, no denomination, convention, or association can force a church to do something it does not wish to do. That is true of virtually every Baptist church throughout time. So this is a huge misconception about what the Southern Baptist Convention is, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, but the media absolutely does not get this. They think of the Baptist church and the Southern Baptist Convention the same way they think about the Roman Catholic Church. The Southern Baptist Convention determined this, and therefore all 47,000 churches have to do the exact... It's the exact opposite. The churches determine what they want to do autonomously from the Southern Baptist Convention. All right? So we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, sixth, Baptists have always championed, this is something that sort of may catch you off guard, come out of the left field, have always championed liberty of conscience for all people. This is the belief that every person is free to follow his conscience on religious matters without any human coercion. Second here, religious liberty is ultimately about the Great Commission. Church-state separation protects the freedom of Christians to proclaim Christ to non-Christians and make disciples from people of all nations. So, one second. Uh, as it pertains to something Baptists have always held dear to is the, basically the freedom of religion for all people. Now, this can really sometimes hit Baptists and kind of come back on them. Basically, and we had this happen not that long ago. In 2001, obviously we know what happened September 11, 2001, right? Well, some years later, there was uh, uh, Muslims that wanted to build a mosque near, I think it was like a block away from the, uh, the wor wor World Trade Ground Zero, right, a in New York. And some of the Baptists at sort of the, the top uh, rungs, whatever you want to call that, uh, leaders, wrote uh, an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. An amicus brief is basically, it means friend of the court, and it's, uh, it basically says to the court, look, here's our take on it for what it's worth. We, you know, one way or the other. And the Southern Baptists, the people in positions of leadership, the amicus brief was in favor of allowing the Muslims to build a mosque. And a lot of Southern Baptists, that rubbed them the wrong way. They pushed back on that, and they were like, what? No! Right? But the reason that they did that was because Baptists have always been founded on the principle of freedom of religion of all people. And part of the reason they pushed back against governments in the past, whether it be in England or even here, is when they overstep their bounds and infringe upon that. Because what is core to Baptist faith is the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations. I don't want you infringing government or pushing or coercing any person that I could come in contact with so that it might govern the way they respond to the preaching of the gospel. That's basically the kind of undergirding principle. Now, when it hits something like that, it's sort of gives you kind of one of those gut-check moments, right? But all that the Southern Baptists, or all that the Baptists were saying at that point was, we don't want government interfering in any way in regards to religion. Should a mosque be built 
and they begin to maybe uh, concoct a, a, a plan to do something nefarious, as, has, as was done on 9-11, the government step in and do what you've got to do in regards to that. But in regards to governing how the religions function within the country, step back has always been the, the crime. So uh, liberty of conscience has always been uh, important as far as the Great Commission goes. Now, questions? Go ahead, James. Yeah, um, so James's question was about um, <coughs> uh, cake bakers and things like that. I think if I could probably guess what your, where your question's coming from is two Supreme Court cases. One was out of Colorado and one was out of Washington. One was a florist that said uh, no to providing flowers for a, a same-sex, um, so-called same-sex wedding. And the other was a... a cake baker who refused to bake a cake under the same conditions. Both brought before the Supreme Court, both given a, a f I think a fine. I think they were, they had to pay a lot of money. I think they were told, uh, well, I don't know exactly what they were told in terms of, I think one of them was even facing maybe a prison sentence or jail time. Uh, I feel like, anyway, there was a lot of things going on there. Um, so, again, Baptists would agree, I think, in the same, the same principle, the government has no right to infringe upon the freedom of someone's conscience to, to practice their religion. <coughs> Obviously, given the circumstances, so long as it, it doesn't um, physically end someone's life or harm them in any way, like physically harm them in any way. Um, so uh, I, I think as, as Baptists, we would say those laws or those were infringing upon the rights of the cake baker and the florist to practice their religion in the way that they saw fit. Um, so why is it that the government could do that? That's, I think, a whole different question in terms of, like, that gets us into a political science, uh, you know, debate a little bit um, in terms of why the Supreme Court ruled the way that they did on those particular things and, and is as out of bounds as I feel like they were on all of those. Going back to even 2015 with the Obergefell decision, um, you know, it's it's ours to to vote and and change the laws where we can, you know. Timothy. Oh man, um, well because following Christ isn't seen as important. It would I would say is number one. Um, second. The Bible is not seen any, any, by, by and large across our culture as, um, as first of all, uh, you know, from an from a understanding it perspective, a lot of the culture is biblically illiterate, but then that, I think, has produced uh, biblical apathy, which, would, which basically says, not only can I not understand the Bible, I don't think it has anything important to say to me anyway. And, um, and so... Baptism is one of many things that follow, falls, you know, right in line there. 
I, I would say the same about um, living, living with each other before marriage or outside of marriage. You know, that, that also has become commonplace now to the point where when you counsel, pre, pre, do premarital counseling, and you say, uh, well, I, you, it's against what God actually establishes in his word. Fornication is a sin, and, you know, they look at you like you've got three heads. What are you, what are you talking about? You know, it's, but it's pretty clear in Scripture that that's the case. And so I think, you know, baptism but goes in, in a long line of things that, you know, are, have fallen out of favor with the culture just because, I mean, by and large, people don't want to obey Christ. Yeah, well, and, and I know um, baptism can be a, um, a touchy subject, especially for parents when you're you're parenting your children. And um, as much as you tell parents, baptism will not save your child. They would agree with you in the office. Yeah, I agree with that in principle. What is the first thing that they want to do as soon as their child even breathes the word Jesus? Let's dunk him in water, you know. Let's make sure this thing takes. Hold on, all right? Let's see faith mature, develop, produce actual fruit. Let's make sure that what he's doing or saying or she is doing or saying is authentic, that it's actually born-again faith that's in there. Uh, I, for one, was baptized at eight. Um, my wife was baptized, I think, eight as well. Um, both of us would say that was far too early for us as children. We had no idea what we were doing. We were responding to exactly what our parents said. I went down front. True story. You'll bear with me for just a second. I went down front because I wanted to be baptized. And um, I answered all the questions, knew all the answers. Truth be told, I never thought of myself as anything but a Christian probably much the same way my children think of themselves. I never would have considered not following Jesus, ever. And answered all the questions, but, and I never told anybody this, but the reason that I thought to even get baptized was in my second grade class, my teacher had a poster on the door of a closet that had all the children in the class's name on it, and when they were born, and when they were baptized. And mine had birthday blank. And I was one of two students in the class that didn't have a date on their baptism. Well, I'll fix that, right? So in October of 91, I walked down the aisle, and I said, you know, I need to be baptized. Um, what I did not know at the time, I, I mean, I, I knew it, I didn't understand at the time, 
is that I was going to one of the only private schools in town, which was a Catholic school. And all but two students in my class were Catholic. And if I had just paid attention for just two seconds, I would have seen that their birth date was super close to their <laughs> baptism date. <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. Now, <laughs> I knew how to answer all the questions. And, but was, I reflected a lot of what my parents believed. It wasn't until much later in my life that I began to understand what it means to be forgiven of sin. First of all, to have transgressed against God, to have sinned against God and be guilty under His wrath for the sin that I've committed. I didn't understand that until much later, my teenage years. And then I began to understand my actual need for Christ and what significance there was in Christ dying for me because I had experienced sin at that point. I had seen the guilt that came because of sin and had understood what the grace of God through Christ actually meant and it was at that point that I realized, yes. Now, was God, did he hear the prayers of me as a kid growing up? And did he know faith would be? I, I, I can concede that. And I would say I didn't go forward and get rebaptized. I was baptized in a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. Southern Baptist Church, too. And so I, I, I knew what they were preaching was true and genuine. And, and I believe that baptism was genuine and how God irons that out on the back end I have no idea but he I know he takes care of all those things but point is we as a church can be careful about how we treat children because for every me or my wife that's out there there's a whole host of people that have gone forward at seven years old or five years old or however old gotten baptized and then felt like well I've got my my gospel shot I'm inoculated and grow up never darken the door of a church again, never even say the name of Jesus ever again after that and live like hell every single day of the week and assume that because they went forward at seven, they are a Christian when the Bible would not define them as Christian in any way, shape, or form. But we've told them, you are. And there hasn't been church discipline on the back end to say, actually, no. So we have to be really careful when it comes to kids. creates a whole lot of things. I mean, that's probably on the list, sure. But it, 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 create, it has created, I've had, I've had, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who said, I don't think I knew what I was doing when I, was, when I got baptized. I, I got baptized too early. I didn't understand all of this up front. And I've had one lady just break down in tears on the other side and say, I, I feel like I was somewhat coerced my parents and my grandparents. Her grandparent was a preacher. And, uh, and that I don't, I don't think I was a Christian until just now. You know? And I, I mean, a, a whole host of everything in between. And those are the people that are actually coming to church and now realize and, are, and really want to follow Christ now. How many are there out there that have been baptized that have run far away from the church, but like people in my family, my own siblings, would tell you, I've been baptized. I did the thing. I got the stuff. I got the little book. I did it with the pastor. I got up there and got baptized in the baptistry. I'm good. Well, but you've never, one, you've never darkened the door of a church since. You're living with your, you know, with other people. 
And, you know, and, and there seems to be no remorse on the backside of that. Well, how is that a Christian at all? Well, the church told me I was. There's a problem there, right? And so we have to be just very careful. Yeah. No, I, I think they would treat... Uh, all right, let me just say... Okay, so... Okay, so here we go. So, first of all, let, let me put a couple caveats out there. The, que- the question was, for those of you that are in the back, I don't, could y'all hear it? Lacey, could you hear it? Okay. Um, basically, it was, if I had a seven-year-old, we went to the Presbyterian Church, would they allow the seven-year-old to be baptized, or would they? what would they do? So, let me put some caveats out there. One, I'm not Presbyterian, all right? So I, this answer does not come with any authority. It's what I kind of know is the trend. But second, uh, I'm not going to assume that every Presbyterian minister would do the exact same thing. But third, I would say that most likely they would baptize a seven-year-old under the same pretenses that they would baptize a baby. And they would say, this child is a member uh, member of the covenant community or of the covenant family. Presbyterians, again, PCA, PCUSA, different branches of Presbyterianism, they say different things, but Presbyterians are not by and large saying, this kid is saved. That's part of the problem we ironed out, is like a paedo-baptist, they all say the different thing. So a Catholic church is going to say the removal of the stain of original sin. Presbyterians don't say that. Yeah, they say they're set apart for the covenant community. They're they're being raised in a Christian household, and the expectation is that one day they will, again, like we would say, make their faith their own, but they don't see baptism as the inaugural sign that they've made their faith their own, like Baptists do, right? So they would say, but that has nothing to do with baptism. Right? Them making their faith their own, that has nothing to do with baptism. That just sets them apart from the culture. It's largely what they're saying. We see baptism as slightly more significant than that. So I think they would baptize them under the same pretenses. This kid is growing up in the same ho- in, a, in a Christian home. They're set apart from the co- and, and community. And I can reword the same question and make it clear. Because we go back and make right. it Right. They come back and make it clear. And at some point, they have to say, no, he's at an age where he's got to make his own decision. Sure. Okay, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, w- obviously, there's, there's a whole host of reasons why the way a Presbyterian sees baptism. He's going to be 18, and I can ask the same question. Right. And at some point, they're going to go, okay, he's not part of, he's not growing up under your auspices anymore. And granted, I, I understand where you're coming from, and, and that's certainly true. Um, there is a point where they're going to have to draw a line. And I think that's true of us, too. We're just going the other direction, and we're going, there's a part where we're going to have to go, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a lady in, in my office where, um, I mean, that was the question, was, you know, kid, I want the kid to be baptized. I felt like the kid was really young, was reflecting all the same things their parent, parent was saying. That's great, by the way. Can I just say, like, if your kid 
is saying to you all the basic tenets of the gospel. It's phenomenal. You're doing your job as a parent. My question is always going to be, where is your kid different than you? Right? Where is your kid beginning to differentiate himself or herself from you as a parent? There is a line where that happens. And parents of teenagers or parents that have raised teenagers, you know, you don't know, it's not the same for every kid, but there is a time where they begin to differentiate themselves and you start to see faith becoming their own. It's at that point where the church, as fruit inspectors, where we're seeing the fruit of the Spirit coming out of them, that we go, we can affirm what he's saying or what she believes. We can affirm that as a church because we're seeing the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is believer's baptism, right? Not simply taking the parent's word for it. So, yes, Kirsten. Yeah, with, with adults, it can be a little bit... You mean an adult never been baptized? Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yes. Yeah, we yeah, we do yeah, absolutely. I I, I there's a there's a time of I, I and that time is going to be different for every every person. With adults, it becomes a little slightly more simple than a kid that was raised in a Christian home, okay? Because an adult is making adult decisions, and they're at least a little bit more aware. But there is, there is a time of, of sitting down. Let's talk about what the gospel is. There's potentially even getting them in a relationship with another person. We did that with an adult here. Got them involved in a relationship with another person who is reading with them uh, what the gospel is, teaching them what the gospel is, helping make sure that they understood what the gospel is over, the, over a period of time. We want to see some of that fruit begin to bear out in their lives. And it's different for every person, you know, uh, but I, I think there's a, a time period there of just making sure that that's what's happening, especially in a culture where the gospel is being widely proclaimed and it's not just this radical, you know, turn. Um, we don't practice open water baptism, in other words, right? Like, uh, we, we, don't, we don't do that, and I'm not advocating for that ever. So there, there's a time of, I think, reflection, not a, a big, long time. We're not making some hoops that aren't really there or anything like that. We're just wanting to make sure that the conversion is genuine. But here's the caveat to that. We're going to miss it. All right? You're going to miss it. That's why church discipline has to be there on the back end, so that we're clarifying what the gospel is. We saw a credible testimony we thought of faith. Turns out we were wrong. You know, we made a mistake. I mean, we were wrong. And maybe it was, seemed evident at the time, but it, it, it just it seemed like the other way around. Church discipline has to be there on the back end for some of that. All right. So let's pray and then let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time together together and, and just think and discuss. We pray that you would um, be with the words that were spoken, the scriptures that were read, that um, thought as we unpack what it means to, to be Baptist. And we certainly don't want to present our way as the only way or anything like that, but that we would submit ourselves to your word and to, to your governance of our church and and that in everything we would consult what your word has to say and we would do everything that we can uh, to follow every step along the way with it. That we might submit ourselves to you and you alone through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.